Hello everyone, I'm Giulio Prisco and this is the Turing Church podcast. Today I am uh, talking with Lincoln Cannon and Michael Redding. I wish to discuss how religions should evolve to reflect and support the evolution of science, technology and society, and at the same time continue to offer hope and happiness, the prospect of a cosmic destiny and uh, the promise of life after death in a better world. I think religions should let go of the parts of their teachings that are not compatible with the spirit of science. Uh, Note that I have not said compatible with science. I have said compatible with the spirit of science. I think uh, current science is very far from having all the answers. And I suspect that science will never have all the answers at a given time. But the spirit of science is our uh, drive to think, experiment, learn and understand the world better and better, every day better than the day before. I think religions should also let go of uh, the parts of their teachings that are not welcoming of everyone without uh, discriminations. But this evolution of religions should not throw the baby out with the dirty water. It is important that religions retain and emphasize the parts of their teachings that affirm life after death, our participation in a cosmic project and wonderful unseen parts of reality. Concerning the concept of the supernatural, I think science will understand reality more and more and technology will act upon reality more and more without limits. Eventually, we will develop the ability to reach back into the past and bring the dead back using science and technology. Human technology will become divine technology But there are higher beings out there and aspects of reality that are so far beyond our current understanding that we may as well call them supernatural at this moment. I think religions should redefine the concept of the supernatural in this sense. So this is what I wanted to say and I look forward to hearing what you guys will say. Let's give the floor to Lincoln because he comes first in alphabetic order and then to Micah. Thanks for the invitation, Julio. I'm happy to be talking with you and Micah this morning. You're some of my favorite people, especially when it comes to science and religion. You're both experienced and educated and intelligent thinkers on the subject and I look forward to hearing what you have to say and interacting with you this morning. On the subjects that you've that you've mentioned, I share with you the interest in and encouragement of combining science and religion for a better future. I agree with you that religion should continue to syncretize with the spirit of science, as you put it, 
and it has done so for thousands of years already. So I, I don't see any reason why we should think it unlikely that it will continue to do so. We've, we've seen that with Christianity. We've seen that with Islam. We've seen that with Eastern religions. And we'll continue to see that with emerging versions of those religions and new religions going into the future. You, you mentioned that you think that religion should uh, continue to maintain its sense of the supernatural um, with the caveat that the supernatural is something that we just can't explain yet. I'm, I'm generally okay with that perspective on, on the supernatural, although I tend to discourage the use of the word supernatural among religious persons because I think it tends to be understood as something that's contrary to science or incompatible with science, even in the long run. And because of that inclination, I prefer to describe my religious perspectives as natural, that I uh, embrace and support and encourage natural religion. And that doesn't mean that religion for me is devoid of the miraculous, the amazing, the inspiring, the revelatory. My religion includes all of those things, but I anticipate that all of, the, all of the explanations for those sorts of things are ultimately consistent with what you've called the spirit of science and that we should trust in that compatibility. We should cultivate that compatibility for all of the practical benefits that arise when we approach knowledge from a scientific angle. So I, that's all I'll say for now, and I'm looking forward to continuing to discuss with both of you this morning. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for um, thanks for inviting me. And um, uh, this is uh, some some great and exciting stuff to to talk about. And um, so I, I'm going to approach it from uh, a slightly different angle, and I'm going to ask kind of where the spirit of science comes from and where does it belong. Um, and uh, I would argue that within Christianity, it belongs right at the heart of, of what Christianity is. And um, so for me, um, I describe my commitment to science as a spiritual, a theological commitment. Um, and they're, they're precise kind of Christian ways of formulating this. But um, but I would, you know, for for people who are familiar with the New Testament, there is um, there is this kind of promise and you find it in, in places like Hebrews and, and first Corinthians and the writings of the Gospels and and all the way back to Genesis that humanity has been given everything um, by God, that God is holding nothing back. And, and this is actually said a couple of times in the Gospels. The, the figure of God says, all that I have is yours. You are always with me and all that I have is yours. And so this, I think, is the core of the Christian promise, is that we understand God to have given us everything. And that extends to um, everything, uh, like the potential knowledge and um, power over everything in the physical universe and beyond, according to the book of Hebrews. Um, so... This is that to me is the spirit of science, and so when we deal with something like supernatural, as as Lincoln um, mentioned, 
what it can often mean is the place where we we say here is the limit of what what you can question and understand and from there you can go no further right so in my faith we say there is no such limit right there is no limit beyond which we cannot question beyond which we cannot understand beyond which we cannot have power that has been given to us by God and actually to deny that, to say that there's something off limits would be to deny the promises of the gospel. So that spirit of science uh, for me is right at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's, so there is a, um, it's not simply that there are challenges from the outside to the Christian faith, which there always are, right? Uh, things that we, new information that we need to integrate and so forth. It's not simply that. It's actually that we have this kind of faith calling to pursue new information, to pursue uh, a better understanding, and to challenge ourselves, um, actually. So, yeah, so that's where I would come from in this. And so I think I agree very much with the spirit of, of what you both have said in terms of religion needing to continually challenge itself and update its understanding of the world and move forward in the spirit of science integrating with the um you know our best understandings uh, of the world at the current time and um yeah i think there are a lot of other things that you kind of in, you know mentioned along the way that would be fun to get into and discuss but that's kind of the basic idea the basic framework that i would use for thinking about this and for the future of religion as a whole, it is this process of continual change and updating, and it should be driven from a faith, a spiritual impulse that actually comes from inside the religion itself, at least in my belief as I see it. So, yeah. Thank you very much. I am uh, in complete agreement with what uh, you both have said. Now, at the beginning, I said that, uh, for me, religions should uh, change certain things, but should not change certain other things. Uh, and why am I thinking of this? I'm thinking of this because I'm reflecting of uh, what I see religion becoming in current society. And uh, I notice certain things. For example, I'm sure you notice that uh, uh, today many people say the universe where uh, their uh, parents and grandparents would have said a god. This, uh, well, maybe just an uh, innocuous linguistic habit stimulated by Hollywood, but uh, perhaps, and uh, many people have uh, written about this, it uh, does reflect a certain new religious sensibility, or maybe even a new religion, that is uh, slowly emerging uh, kind of spontaneously. And this uh, weak religion, is a, this uh, new religion, it's a very interesting thing, but uh, it does not uh, have uh, very evident, at least, uh, the concepts that uh, have made the religion strong. Like, for example, uh, the belief in life after death, 
the belief in the personal nature of God and the belief that we are here because we are called to do big and good things in the universe. And so I'm kind of scared because I think this new religion is not strong enough to continue to play the positive role that religions have historically played. It's kind of uh, too weak for that, because it doesn't emphasize these aspects of religion that make it strong. What do you guys think about that? The, uh, the philosopher William James, pragmatist philosopher that we're all familiar with, argued on multiple occasions that religion is and can be something that provokes a strenuous mood in people to act and to shape the world around them. And that this strenuous mood, because it's so powerful, will ultimately, uh, to quote him, press irreligion to the wall. That the, that the strong religions will have the power to shape our future and our communities and ultimately our present, our present of course, not just our future, uh, in ways that weaker ideologies will not. And Julio, you mentioned some fear. I, I share with you that concern that if the kindest people among us, if the most creative people among us, if the most courageous people among us adopt weak ideologies, weak sets of ideas, weak doctrines, weak propositions, if they don't provoke in us the strenuous mood, then somebody else who's less compassionate and who's less creative, who's more dogmatic, maybe more superstitious, perhaps uh, more authoritarian, uh, somebody else will use the power of religion to go in another direction. And the weaker religion, even if it's associated with some better ideas, will lose over the long run to that stronger religion. I, very uh, much I, really, agree on that. I really do think that's a, a, an, import, an important challenge to recognize, a significant risk to work toward mitigating. And that's one of... I've spent a great deal of time working with people like both of you to cultivate transhumanist interpretations of traditional religions, notably Mormonism and Christianity, to help people see that the power of these religions remains as relevant as ever, um, even, in an un even in and with an understanding of emerging technology and contemporary science. And again, the reason that's so important, I think, is because if we don't leverage the power of those religions in accordance with the best available science and technology, 
somebody else will. And maybe that won't be done in a way that is as good and as beautiful and as embracing and inclusive as the ideologies um, and their and their interpretations that we're advocating. Yeah, what you said reminds me very reminds me reminds me very much of the poem that says uh, uh, the best uh, lack all convictions while the worst are full of passionate intensity, and I think it would be really good to find ways to cultivate. Uh, passionate intensity among the best, in a religious sense. So, Michael, what do you think? Yeah, so you raised a, um, a and I, I agree with, um, with the kind of picture that Lincoln was painting there. Uh, you raised this uh, concept of, um, of referring to the, the universe as a, as a, like, uh, the universe wants me to do this, the, the universe is giving me this, and it, it echoes this older language, perhaps, of um, you know, speaking of God. It's it's very loosely disguised language uh, of of speaking about God, and and what I hear in that, um, so we could look at that and say, so there's this religious impulse that shows back up, right? Even if we kind of clear clear it away or something like that. Um, but you also uh, expressed concern about. Um, you know the some dangers within that that impulse and as as i think lincoln portrayed it a kind of weakness within that impulse and i think that's correct that um our our spiritual impulse um is not sufficient for for what we need or at least it's not sufficient in in the kind of raw form that we have it so you know spirituality and religion is a cultural universal for humans um, but we really want to lean into, I think, the strongest version of that that is possible. And, um, and so what I hear is, uh, you know, we can ask different questions. And um, one of those questions might be like, how do I understand my place in the universe? How do I understand, uh, you know, how do I feel good about what I'm doing and, and, and so forth? And maybe, um, maybe there are easy spiritual answers for those things um, that we can all find, right? Maybe, maybe there are answers for that that are widely available and that really don't need a um, strong religious conviction, uh, you know, tradition or conviction or whatever. And, you know, we see the rise of, of what uh, I think sociologists call the nuns, right? The non-religious. And it doesn't mean they're not spiritual. Um, just they don't identify with a specific tradition. And, and I think increasingly many people don't see a function for identifying with a particular tradition. Why would, you know, we've got these kinds of answers that we can find um, that kind of soothe certain kinds of questions and, and, and so forth. But um, we don't really need a whole infrastructure to support that, the, that spirituality, that kind of spirituality. And, um, and so I, I feel like this might be kind of what you're, you're actually pointing to, is a sense like, why do I need something larger, bigger, more audacious, um, you know, more 
maybe hard to grapple with in some ways, a bigger tradition where there are all these pieces of it I have to think through and, and work through. Um, and I think the, the answer to that question is, well, you don't if all you are looking for is kind of a satisfaction of a spiritual impulse. What I think religious traditions and, and the strongest religions tra religious traditions offer is um, an eschatology <laughs> um, and a, a view of the future. Um, and so, you know, Christianity is this eschatological religion. It has a view of the future and how and this dramatic transformation that is on the horizon somewhere and that we can help to bring into being. And it's really only if you have something like that, I think, that then you need a religious tradition that actually kinds of grapples with these larger things, that grapples with how do we organize ourselves and our society, that grapples with all of these kinds of much more difficult and maybe arduous, arduous questions. Um, it's if we have an eschatology, if we have a future that, we, that is dramatically, transformatively different than the present, that's when we really begin to fill the need for um, religious tradition, religious organization, all of these kinds of things. And I think, you know, I, I think in keeping with transhumanism, I think we do need to have that vision of the future. And so that does lead us to say, okay, what is what is our organization? What is our tradition? What is, how are we going to shape our spiritual impulse into something that actually can mobilize and actualize change in the world? And so that's where I think um, that's the element of this that I think we can miss sometimes in thinking through spiritual and religious things. We, we I think, really need that future orientation, that vision of the world that we're actually trying to create, enact, and become part of. I do agree 100% with the interpretation of Christianity and Christian eschatology that you have just given. Uh, at uh, the same time, it is uh, kind of difficult to read exactly the same message in the traditional way Christian eschatology is uh, presented. Uh, because, uh, yes, all, the, uh, all these things will happen and uh, will be made happen by God. And yes, we are called to participate in the process, in some sense. But uh, traditional Christianity does not emphasize the fact that we will have to participate in a very direct sense in the process. Well, uh, perhaps what uh, I have said at uh, the beginning that all things like uh, resurrection of the dead and uh, the remaking of the universe will be done by our descendants or other intelligent beings in the universe by using science and technology. Perhaps that is too much for uh, traditional Christianity to say at this moment, but still I think that uh, religions, including Christianity, should sort of evolve uh, in that direction. 
Yeah, Julio, I would argue strongly, and I and I know some uh, religious transhumanists would disagree with me strongly, but I would yet, I would yet uh, argue in favor of it that theosis, the the doctrine that humanity can and should become God, not displacing God, but joining God, is the most important religious transhumanist idea. I agree. And the reason why I think it's the most important religious transhumanist idea is that any other interpretation of our theology comes short of cultivating ultimate potential. It says there are bounds to how far we can and should go. That God doesn't want us to do something that God has done. And I think that when we embrace anything short of theosis as religious transhumanists, we are doing a favor for the religious fundamentalists to oppose us and who argue that humanity is weak and fallen and degraded and cannot entirely overcome without somebody else, God, doing everything for us ultimately in the end. And while I share with the more traditional Christians the emphasis on the extreme importance of grace, no one of us can do everything alone, ever. That's just simply impossible. We do need, need each other deeply. And the kind of theosis that I advocate uh, in recognizes that grace is utterly essential to becoming gods ourselves or to become like god ourselves but at the same time um that grace is something that we not only need to receive but it's also something that we need to give uh in the christian tradition jesus exemplifies this and invites us to it repeatedly over and over again as do his disciples throughout the rest of the new testament that this giving and receiving of grace is something we should all participate in and that we should all um, be ready to be consoled and healed and raised up by others as needed. And we should all also be engaged in consoling and healing and raising each other up to the extent that we have the power to participate in doing that. And um, again, I, I know that this is a controversial idea among some religious transhumanists because their religious traditions have, have associated theosis with um, a, a kind of arrogance or heresy or um, that it's somehow stepping beyond the bounds that God has set for us. And I think that's deeply wrong. I, I think that the scriptures, Christian scriptures, have plainly taught the value of theosis, uh, have plainly encouraged us to embrace it and participate in becoming God with Jesus and that we should celebrate that. Above all people, religious transhumanists should celebrate the doctrine of theosis. Yeah, so um, there are uh, several different layers there. And I, I think, um, so I think I agree with Lincoln uh, about this. I, um, you know, he, he's talking about the, the doctrine of theosis, which is a, um, long-standing Christian doctrine. It's um, 
very prominent in Eastern Orthodoxy. It's part of the Catholic Catechism. It's talked about by evangelical scholars today. Um, so it's widespread in Christianity, but the, the language uh, of that is not as widespread um, and is not as popular, particularly in, in Protestant Christianity. And instead, uh, typically we use other language. And so we'll talk about um, being transformed into the image and likeness of God or being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, joining with Christ, joining with God, um, uh, co-heirs uh, with Christ, heirs of God, uh, you know, all the this kind of language. Um, and I think when people actually grapple with the New Testament, they realize this language is is much more deeper and more fundamental uh, than than we might uh, assume. Even the language of of uh, being children of God actually is expressed in the New Testament in a stronger sense, in in a sense that means not just infant children, but but adult heirs. And and Paul explicitly talks about this in the book of Galatians. Um, so this idea that we are to be transformed into the likeness of God and that we are then to participate yeah, in the work of God um, is, I, I think, pervasive in, in Christianity, although often unrecognized. Um, and, and in some cases, many cases, actually denied, as I think Lincoln alluded to. Um, but that really is the core of the Christian faith. Genesis 1, first page of the Bible, just says, you know, it, God created humanity in his image and likeness. So that is our nature, that is our destiny, that is who we are supposed to be and become. And Christ exemplifies that and, and calls us and invites us to it. Um, and that participation actually gets expressed in a number of different ways that are actually very fundamental to the New Testament. Um, and so one of the ways uh, that it gets um, talked about is actually understanding um, just the use of the term human, actually, um, because the, the biblical authors understand human to point to image and likeness of God. Um, they understand that there is a, a promise to human beings to come to possess the, um, you know, like I said earlier, uh, as, as, God says in the Gospels, you know, all that I have is yours. Um, so there is a promise to that effect. And in fact, um, the core, most profound eschatological passage in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the resurrection of the dead, uh, the defeat of death, um, the uh, full um, power over physical reality, over the entirety of the universe, and, and over and against all enemies of life, such as uh, death and disease and so forth. Um, that passage, um, Christians conventionally read it as something that uh, is talking about what Jesus is to do, what Christ is to do. And yet, in Paul's description of this, the reason that Christ does this. The reason that it is necessary for Christ to be fulfilling this is because of this promise to humans uh, as the image and likeness of God that this is what we are to do. This is our role in the cosmos. 
And so Paul explicitly says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that we participate in this, that this is our role, that this is a promise for us, and Christ participates in it in order to invite us into it. So that role of participation is actually fundamental. And uh, Lincoln um, you know, said um, it's important for us to recognize the uh, the significance of grace, that we don't do it alone. And I think that's really the key here. And the reason why there's so much emphasis on this as the, the work of God um, is that in no generation has it ever been the case that a single human being could ever have accomplished this, right? Um, in fact, we can only work towards accomplishing it by understanding that others will have to join with us that you know scientific projects require huge um, uh, numbers of cooperating people and and huge efforts and so forth so we all do implicitly rely on larger um, structures larger things ultimately on grace ultimately on um, the you know our, our faith in, in some sense that these things are possible and that we are moving towards this. But that is the basis of us participating in it and, in, in fact, acting very deliberately to participate in it, which I would argue, as I have argued, that that is a scriptural calling. And I would um, echo what, what Lincoln said here about we also have to give grace. That's actually fundamental to how um, the, the Gospels work. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, there's two times in the Gospels where it says, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Um, one time is from uh, what Christians call God the Father to uh, the children of God. The second time is from the children of God to God the Father. And it's a really profound statement um, in the Gospel of John that a human being turns to God and says, all that I have is yours, right? He's taking that kind of um, stance of being able to, to bless God and having, um, you know, extending in a sense that, that grace to God. And so it's reciprocal and it goes all directions. And, and Christ says this to his followers. He says this to the people around him. Uh, this is very much uh, about participation and empowering each other and giving grace to each other so that we can participate in this work together. Uh, Mike, I really wish all Christians interpreted uh, Christianity this way, but uh, as you admit, there, are, uh, some, uh, there is some resistance to this interpretation. Now, perhaps we can move uh, uh, even further with the concept that I have also always liked very much, which uh, we could call uh, theosis on steroids, or maybe hypertheosis. And, uh, well, uh, uh, beware, I'm going to say a few borderline heretic things. In fact, I'm going to say that God doesn't exist, but then I will immediately correct myself and say that God does exist indeed. So the concept is that uh, perhaps, I'm just thinking aloud, that perhaps God doesn't exist right now. It will exist in the future. Uh, God will exist in the future when uh, we, humans, or someone else in the universe 
will achieve theosis and become God. This is one way of saying things, and Arthur C. Clarke said that uh, perhaps our purpose, our mission, is not to worship God, but to create God. But now, what does it mean to say that God will exist in the future? In view of uh, something that uh, modern physics is very strongly implying, and this something is that uh, the fundamental concept of time is much uh, weirder than the kind of time that we can intuit. Uh, it is uh, perfectly possible for things that have not happened yet to influence and act upon the universe here and now. Now, if you think in this way, uh, the fact that uh, God will exist in the future also means that God exists now. God is a uh, uh, master of time, and uh, even from uh, some uh, place in the future, God can do everything that uh, God has to do in the universe here and now. And of course, uh, what I'm saying is very uh, imprecise, because I'm uh, uh, mixing the intuitive concept of uh, time with more refined concepts of time that we don't understand yet. But I'm sure you get uh, the core of what I'm saying. And I think this is a nice way to close the loop between uh, man and uh, God and between now and uh, the future. And a nice way to define a concept of God which is completely consistent with uh, what I call the, the spirit of science. And of course I realize that is uh, a very heretic point of view that should not be preached to the Christian masses quite yet. But yes, I do believe that uh, religions should and uh, will evolve toward uh, this kind of concepts. Julio, I, I love and respect and enjoy engaging with my friends who trust that God just doesn't exist yet. I, I you, you know, as you pointed out, um, you think that in a sense, the potential God of the future um, may be able to reach back in time and in a sense exists already. I have other friends who have similar contemplations and aspirations. And as I said, I, I, I think that that is, uh, I think that that's good. I'll add that I think it's a good start, but a bad stop. And the reason that I think that it's a bad stop is that I think that the position is ultimately logically inconsistent. Um, that it ultimately is a position that cannot be maintained coherently. 
And the reasons for that I express in the new God argument, but kind of just a, 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 a brief explanation of that would be that when we talk about Godhood, we're talking about the pinnacle of creation, the pinnacle of creativity, the pinnacle of creative power. And what that entails must be the capacity to create all that can be created, or in other words, the capacity to create worlds. Anything short of that would not be, by definition, the pinnacle of creative power, because there's something that you cannot create if you cannot create entire worlds or entire universes. And so when I, when I trust in humanity's potential to become like God, when I trust in humanity's potential to become God or to become gods, however you want to portray that, I'm trusting in humanity's potential to reach that pinnacle of creativity, to reach meta-creativity, to create even new creators. In other words, the capacity for gods to create more gods or for God to expand godhood uh, indefinitely. And an interesting consequence of that is that once we start saying that the superhuman intelligences of the future, the gods of the future will have, we trust that they will have this meta-creative capacity to create worlds, to create universes without end. One of the logical and probabilistic consequences of that as, um, is demonstrated by the mathematics and reasoning of the simulation argument and extrapolated for all feasible creation mechanisms is that we almost certainly already live in a created world ourselves. I think that that logic and that and those probabilities uh, come together to provide a very strong argument, and that ultimately transhumanists who aspire to superintelligence at the level of meta creativity, the capacity to create all that is creatable, including more creators, if we aspire to that, but then we reject trust that such creators already exist, that we're undermining ourselves, that we are being logically incoherent. And so I think that trust in our superhuman potential logically entails trust in our superhuman origins, that we have superhuman creators is entailed by our trust that we can become such ourselves. It seems to me, Lincoln, that you have uh, presented uh, an alternative uh, picture, which is a very interesting one, but uh, you have not demonstrated that uh, the picture that I presented before that is uh, logically incoherent. In fact, uh, you know, if you add to your picture the concept that uh, the future can act back upon the past, 
which of course should be formulated much more precisely than that. Uh, then the two pictures become uh, very compatible, I believe. I do realize very well that uh, saying what I'm uh, trying to say is very difficult because we don't even have the language for that. But you know, I know that you get what I mean anyway. I I do think, Julio, that the that the aspiration you're describing uh, is consistent with everything we know about science and technology, and may prove feasible in the future, and that it's that it is entirely compatible with the new God argument. I agree with all of that. Where I where I would suggest that the logical coherence breaks down is when we take a, a step beyond that and we say, maybe God doesn't exist yet. And I think once we, once we say that, or the more strong version, which is more common among some uh, strongly secular atheist transhumanists, the stronger version is, well, we can perhaps become God, but God does not exist yet. And that's where I would say the logical incoherence manifests itself most obviously. And that is when we embrace the likelihood or the probability, even the reasonable possibility that we can become God while simultaneously saying, but God probably doesn't exist yet. That's where, I'm, that's where I would say the logical incoherence arises is in that differential of our assessment of the probability of godhood in the future versus godhood in the past. Okay, let me uh, try to propose a solution to the dilemma that we are discussing. Now, uh, going back to uh, my picture, I have been... Uh, picturing uh, God as an entity which is not limited by uh, time as we understand the time. Now, given this uh, assumption, uh, the statement God doesn't exist yet is entirely meaningless because uh, the category of uh, a yet does not apply to God. So that, uh, yes, I do agree with you, given this consideration, that uh, the statement God doesn't exist yet is uh, incoherent. And uh, again, it's uh, very difficult to talk of things that operate between brackets simultaneously across all uh, times with uh, our language, whose uh, uh, very central feature is time. But I'm sure you understand. Yeah, and I, and I think when you, when you frame that perspective on God in the way you just have, I think that does become a, a coherent theology. I'd add that there are many coherent theologies that are compatible with the New God argument. You've described one, which is 
um, which is expressed through kind of weirdness in our ability to interact through time, which is a, which is consistent with contemporary science. We we cannot we cannot disprove that possibility presently, and it may prove to be feasible in the future. Others, there are other alternatives as well that are also consistent with contemporary science. One would be something very straightforward along the lines of the simulation argument, where um, superhuman intelligence in the future will run computer emulations of their emu evolutionary history. And uh, per the logic and probability, we would then probably be living in one of those evolutionary emulations ourselves. Another possibility would be something as simple as terraforming. Um, we could terraform worlds throughout the universe and reach a certain degree of probability that um, we might be living in something like a terraformed world that was created by our predecessors. Another possibility that I find particularly salient myself is uh, what I would call a cosmoforming uh, creation mechanism. And that might be kind of a hybrid with computation where we use advanced computing power and advanced physics to create little baby universes. Maybe they look like black holes uh, to do very condensed computing, very optimized computing in which we can uh, create entirely new universes, new worlds with initial parameters set in ways that are favorable for the emergence, uh, for the perpetuation and emergence of new intelligence and new superintelligence, new creators, ultimately. All of these possibilities are consistent with the doctrine of theosis. They're consistent with the logic of the new God argument. And all of them uh, position us, I think, very well uh, with a practical faith to pursue into the future, uh, some, they say to us, there's something that we can and should do to shape the future for our mutual benefit, for our mutual increase in creativity. And, and, and I would argue compassion plays an, a, a, an incredibly important role in all of this as well for reasons that I haven't discussed here, but which maybe we could discuss at another time or later on. But by looking at godhood and our participation in it in these ways in accordance with what might be feasible creation mechanisms i think we take a very practical stance in our theology and that changes our lives in important ways that changes the way we we choose our professions the way we choose our relationships the way we choose our religions the way we shape the world around us and i think that the, those choices are like very long levers they can make a very big difference in the future what do you think about all that, Micah? Yeah, so uh, as you're talking through this, uh, what kind of comes up for me is uh, the ways in which it uh, both resonates with and exists in tension with um, kinds of Christian ways of talking about these things. Um, and Lincoln mentioned the, the kind of practical ramifications of, of trying to... Um, live in the universe with um, with these kinds of frameworks, right? And um, so uh, I was thinking about the fact that the, the preacher at my church, which is 
fairly large church here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I think about 1,500 people um, is the membership. And uh, he, he um, frequently says something along the lines of, Christ is a traveler from the future. Uh, and, um, and he doesn't mean this literally. He means this um, as a metaphor um, that, that Christ is a picture of what the future of the universe actually is. And that um, we are supposed to be living into that future, right? That we are patterning ourselves after that future um, that has kind of been glimpsed in, in the present and indeed in the past. Um, and that that is shaping our choices and shaping our lives towards that future, towards living in uh, the language uh, that would be used as God's future, right? So the, the future of the cosmos is a future where God is, uh, to use 1 Corinthians 15 language, uh, God is all in all, where God fully inhabits um, the, the physical universe and we in turn uh, inhabit it with God and, um, and you know, it as God's likeness. And, uh, and that, that is intended and I think does exert a kind of, um, you know, really kind of profound um, ethical and uh, narrative um, influence on our lives, like the choices we're making, that kind of thing. Um, and so there is this, uh, this idea, uh, you know, the language you were using, Julio, of um, God does not exist yet, is actually you, you you described it as heretical um but it's actually um uh, not that far from classical christian theology and um and uh, there was a movement in the 60s um within the christian theological world to talk in this way and so you see wolfhart pannenberg is a is the kind of leading voice in this um uh and it talks about God as the future, right? And so thinking about God as the future stands to, you know, kind of give shape to what it means when when we talk about God doing something to us or something like that. We are, in a sense, always confronting the future, right? We're in the present. We're moving towards the future. So we're always kind of in this relationship with the future. So they, they do talk in this way of, like, God is the future, and the future is um, kind of... Uh, also present in that it is continually confronting us, changing us, challenging us, so forth. And um, I think that's that. That was a particularly strong way of of saying that. But what they were saying was really consistent with classical theology, going back to Aquinas and uh, and before, where uh, maybe a, a way of actually um, saying. You know, another way of putting this would be the idea of embodiment. So, in some some versions of classical theology, I think if you read between the lines, what they're actually saying is something like God is an ideal that exists in some kind of abstract sense that uh, needs to be embodied in the world, and that ultimately will be embodied in the world, and at which point, um, you know, the the cosmos will be transformed in. Now, I kind of, um, like many uh, Christians in the, in, uh, the world, um, have some qualms with that kind of classical 
theism and uh, kind of going along with Lincoln, I want to say um, it's not just that God exists as an abstract um, somewhere. There, there is greater existence that really does exist um, in a sense already uh, to, to whatever extent those terms uh, make sense here. But that this idea of God is being embodied in our universe, that is the story. Uh, it's what Christ is about. It's what we are called to do as, as Christians, as, as the church in the New Testament language. Um, as people, we are called to embody the life of God and um, to bring the cosmos into embodying life. So I think on a, on a practical level, that idea that the future is the embodiment of God in the universe, and that that is the shaping and determinative structure of our lives, and that that exerts a, a strong influence on us in various ways, right? In part just by knowing that it's, that it's um, our future, in part because if it really is our future, then um, there are things already happening now that are leading towards that. Um, I think that can be a strong um, uh, thing, but there are lots of layers of, of questions there and so forth. But I just wanted to kind of connect those things because I think um, I think you're seeing this as maybe farther outside of the Christian tradition than it actually is. And um, I think it helps Christians who are kind of struggling with these things to actually connect some of these dots and think through what they're actually saying and what they actually might mean. Well, it's very good to hear that I'm not a heretic. In fact, I have been, uh, uh, I have uh, read the writings of uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg about this, and uh, my impression is that uh, I can read him in exactly my way, but uh, he's ambiguous enough that uh, you don't have to read him in this way. In fact, as you well know, uh, at uh, some point uh, Pannenberg very much uh, supported the idea that uh, Frank Tibler describes in the physics of immortality and uh, the physics of Christianity, but always uh, in a language that, how to say, is uh, ambiguous enough uh, to provide him with uh, plausible deniability. But well, uh, it's good to hear you say that, and yes, these ideas uh, can be found in uh, traditional uh, Christianity, if you look hard enough. Uh, uh, we could... Uh, spend uh, all day and more days and uh, many weeks uh, discussing these uh, intriguing uh, eschatological visions for the future, but uh, maybe coming back to the present, um, I have been watching these uh, videos from space uh, from uh, the inspiration for uh, astronauts, and I assume that you have been doing the same. No? They are uh, going to splash down later today, in a few hours from now. And this is a, a pointer to a future that I would very much like to see. 
in which uh, we humans start uh, expanding into the solar system and uh, maybe uh, tomorrow beyond the solar system and uh, we start doing so many other things to make uh, our world much better and much more uh, interesting through a lot of means uh, including science and technology which is exactly what uh, we have been discussing now with the understanding that uh, our doing uh, this uh, is uh, completely in uh, line with uh, the plan of God and I'm wondering uh, you know how can we, you know, uh, the Mormon uh, Transhumanist Association is uh, relatively small and uh, the Christian Transhumanist Association is also small. How should we proceed to try and uh, making our idea more uh, popular or at least more accessible to the billions of people out there? Yeah, Julio, you know, when, when I think about our nascent human space exploration, the, the spirit of science and the spirit of God are both, uh, I, I feel them both strongly when I contemplate what we're doing. So I, I celebrate that too, along with you. I think it's a beautiful thing. Regarding what we can do to promote religious transhumanism, to promote Christian and Mormon transhumanism, to promote cosmism, uh, to promote these sorts of ideas that, that accentuate humanity's compassionate and creative potential to superhuman levels. I think that in, in a lot of ways, we're doing what we need to do by creating frameworks of thought that others can use and build on further. And that over time, these frameworks of thought will become um, increasingly influential. But of course, your question is also partly about how can we do this faster? How can we accelerate it? And, you know, may maybe maybe one of you know many possible answers to that question would be that we need to work harder on creating popular you know creating expressions of these ideas that can become popular more easily that are less technically and less philosophically oriented while still maintaining just enough technological and philosophical flavor to be authentic to what their aims are. And so, you know, may, maybe we just need to work a little bit harder to reach out to people who are good at marketing and media, um, at film and at social networking in ways that kind of go beyond the more nerdy among us 
And in some ways, maybe we already are, you know, we, we all have friends and acquaintances and people in our networks who are better than we may be at popularizing ideas who are themselves involved in media companies of various kinds. And, and when we look at the media today, there are people who are working to share, uh, to share the ideas of human potential through such things like television series on Netflix. One that comes to mind that's coming soon is uh, Isaac Asimov's foundation is coming to Apple TV soon. Um, we've also seen The Expanse. And I think, um, in, at least in the case of The Expanse, because I haven't yet seen The Foundation, in The Expanse, we have depicted for our imaginations a time when humanity has spread throughout um, the star system, our, you know, the solar system, and faces grave challenges and, and um, some brave people with good hearts find ways of confronting those challenges successfully. And I think that in, a, in some ways, in some ways, that is an expression of the ideas that we advocate. But of course, um, more can be done. We, we, we need to do more work to help people understand the importance and the power and the danger of religion going forward. And that um, we have work to do on shaping how religion is used in that future as science and technology continue to become increasingly powerful. And, 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 and I don't know that popular media has yet done that very well. And, and probably because it's such a hard thing for people to conceptualize. And that's where we've done a lot of work. And, and hopefully over time, people who are involved in popular media will increasingly reach out to us um, for, to, in, to allow us to help them uh, shape their narratives in ways that can explore the question of religion in the future better. Yeah, that's what you should do. But I am uh, writing a new book, huh? which uh, should be much shorter and much easier to read than my first one. And I hope uh, the new book uh, will be able to communicate uh, my ideas more efficiently than uh, the first. But uh, as you said, uh, even if uh, I will do my best to write uh, a simple book, I am still an over-nerd and over-intellectual uh, person and uh, what we need is uh, something else. What we need is uh, people who know how to reach out. But I do hope one of them will read my book and help uh, popularizing it. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, um, I think it is interesting the degree to which perhaps we are shaped by um, stories in, in popular culture. And so um, Lincoln mentioned the foundation um, and uh, I'm, you know, I've been um, enjoying apples uh, for all mankind. And um, there's also, uh, you know, the the fourth Matrix uh, movie is coming out soon. And um, and so maybe uh, maybe these stories 
give us um, a way to frame the actual narratives that are playing out, right? Um, and that that we have the opportunity to participate in and so forth. And um, and I find it interesting that as we have developed some very strong um, new uh, content creators, uh, and I, you know we mentioned Apple and and so forth, has like entered the um, the the game of creating stories. I find it interesting that um, we may be observing some kind of a push to create uh, grand narratives about what we are doing and what our place is uh, in the universe, perhaps something like that. And um, and if so, that's that's kind of a heartening thing. I think I, I think those grand narratives are what ultimately. Um, drive our choices, our efforts, where we put energy into. I, I enjoy watching um, uh, government propaganda films from the from World War II because it's it's so interesting how um, how stark they present the choices, how much of a narrative they're presenting about the war. Um, and of course, we can critique that in a number of ways. Um, uh, as as we can any kind of propaganda effort, but but it it is interesting to see people who are um, profoundly good at creating stories that shape um, shape our society's efforts, and I don't think that's necessarily um, manipulative or something like that. I think we are looking for those as as individuals as a society. We want to have narratives, and so we're asking essentially. <laughs> What narratives can you provide? Uh, what what narratives can you give us? And then we'll you know we'll choose among the ones that um, that we resonate with. Um, so one thing I think we need to um, handle, or we need to to give thought to, is uh, bringing together um, different kinds of narratives. So one of the objections that you will often encounter. Um, in talking about space exploration or space flight is the question of, um, you know, shouldn't these resources be devoted to you know, rectifying issues with the environment, with the climate, things like that? Or perhaps uh, shouldn't they be devoted to, shouldn't we devote these resources to helping, um, you know, create jobs or take care of people in need, that kind of thing? And so I think it's important for us to actually connect those and to show how they connect. Um, and so that they are not competing efforts, but actually unified effort. Um, and and so for me, I um, I want to talk a lot about the fact that um, space flight and space exploration is ultimately going to be one of the greatest things we can do for the cultivation and um, and renewal of our environment and uh, the and the planet Earth. Um, simply, and that's true in a number of ways, one of which is that if we really want to understand how ecosystems work, we need some test tubes. And there are, um, you can't do a, you can't understand really how that works until you've seen it play out um, in different places. So that's, that's an essential part of this. We actually have to expand um, out and cultivate ecosystems elsewhere in order to understand our own. Um, and so I, I think bringing those things together and helping those be part of a, a shared narrative about what we 
can do as humans, I think that's crucial. And I think, um, you know, till now we haven't done a good job of that. Um, and so we have these kinds of competing interests when I don't think there need to be competing interest. I think this kind of direction opens up all kinds of possibilities, including um, creating jobs, caring for people who are in need, um, healing the environment, renewing life, all of these kinds of things, I think ultimately can work together. And I think we have to get good at telling stories that emphasize that. Fact, and I think the example you uh, used on how to emphasize uh, the compatibility between a space flight and uh, taking better care of the environment of the Earth is uh, exactly the kind of message that we should be giving right now, I think. And besides the considerations that you made, there is also a much simpler one that, you know, uh, offshoring eventually heavy industry of the Earth can only uh, help healing the environment of the Earth. So that uh, not only there is no opposition between uh, spaceflight and the environment, but I think spaceflight is one of the spaceflight and space expansion are uh, the very means through which we will be able to sustainably protect the environment. This is exactly the message that we should give in this case. This is, by the way, uh, a very central point in my last book about the space flight. And uh, yes, it is a, an example on, of the kind of uh, uh, narratives that we should be promoting. I see that uh, we have been uh, chatting more than one hour and uh, I guess uh, you guys, uh, since this morning for you guys, we have other things to do. So I suggest to stop things now, but uh, it has been extremely interesting chatting with you guys. And let's do it again. Thank you, Julio. Yeah, I'm looking forward, of course, to speaking with you and Micah again, um, whenever our schedules permit. You both inspire me on a regular basis, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great, uh, great chatting with you guys, and uh, always enjoy hearing what you have to say. And thanks for kind of allowing me to go off on some of my tangents. But um, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it and look forward to doing it again. And to those who are listening, thank you very much for listening to us, and uh, please listen to the next uh, editions of the Turing Church uh, podcast.